Thank you for listening to Teaching Artistry with Courtney J. Body. This is part two of a three-part series, Looking Back to Look Forward. Welcome to episode 63, act two, Collaborate, Cultivate, Celebrate, recorded April 30th, 2023. Screaming about irrevocability Let's burn some bridges, earn some stitches And fight our own way free Cause the rules don't lie but they don't apply to people like you and me Let's start it up now 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 Now they say it's all decided, all divided, all laid out and the pushcart man with a three-part plan can't understand what you're shouting about. But when the past they plow, the lives allowed are the only roads you can see. Just remember who walls were built to fall for old people like you and me. Let's start it up now. 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 Hey, hey, TA Podians. Welcome to Teaching Artistry. This podcast is researched, recorded, and produced on the unceded lands, water, and air, stewarded by the Canarsie and Munsee Lenape peoples in what is colonially known as Brooklyn, New York. Thanks so much for listening and supporting this indie podcast. Invite your peeps, colleagues, and friends to join our global community and subscribe on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any podcast player. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Teaching Artistry Podcast and head over to teachingartistry.org to access episodes, guest bios, e-zines, merch, and more. The Teaching Artistry with Courtney J. Body Pod Squad is proud to partner with Teaching Artists Guild in a series called Looking Back to Look Forward. This series documents an oral history focused on TAG's origins, the merger with ATA, and its momentum toward the future. This act features leaders who were directly involved in the merger between Teaching Artists Guild and Association of Teaching Artists. We will hear from them about the initial conversations that kicked everything off, the strategic planning process for the merger, the impacts of the pandemic, and how they planned to build on the groundwork from the previous incarnations of both organizations, ultimately to serve the national teaching artist field. Here is episode 63, act two, collaborate, cultivate, celebrate. This is the second of three panel discussions with leaders of the Teaching Artists Guild or TAG to celebrate TAG's 25th anniversary of its awards, which we heard a lot about um, in a previous session. And um, annually, the, the TAG Awards um, seek to raise the visibility, we talk a lot about this, raise the visibility and celebrate teaching artists um, by being nominated by their peers within the arts and education and community uh, arts fields. Um, so formerly known as the Association of Teaching Artists or ATA Awards, they, uh, they were the first in the nation to recognize teaching artists and in 20. 2022, the awards were rebranded as TAG Awards um, once ATA and TAG merged. And so there are three awards, uh, the Innovation and Teaching Artistry Award, Teaching Artistry, uh, sorry, Teaching Artist Ally Award, and the Distinguished Service to the Field Award. And so this discussion is to learn more about the merger and that transition to support ongoing uh, advocacy for teaching artistry. So let's go around and share your name, your pronouns, if you'd like to share, <clears throat> your role in relation to arts and culture field, and your role within TAG or ATA if it's if you're no longer with TAG. So why don't we start with, uh, actually, can we start with Halea? Hi, my name is Halea DeBarros. I use she, her pronouns, um, and I am a former executive director of ATA, former co-executive director of TAG, along with Nico and Katie and Carrie, 
and um, I'm currently the um, co-chair of the National Advisory Committee's Advocacy and Outreach Committee, which actually uh, runs the awards. How about uh, Lauren? Good morning. <clears throat> My name is Lauren Jost. Uh, I also use she, her pronouns. Um, I am a former board president of ATA and um, briefly uh, TAG after the merger. And um, I'm currently sitting on the National Advisory um, neck and on the, on the advocacy team that, that uh, helps with the awards. Miko? Hi, I'm Miko Lee, she, her pronouns on Ohlone territory. I am a theater teaching artist and have been involved with Teaching Artists Guild since the very beginning on the National Advisory Committee. And then for a brief moment, co-ED with Halea. And now I'm a director at ACRE, Asian Americans for Civil Rights and Equality. And I send it to Jean. Hi, everyone. It's good to be here again. Uh, Jean Johnstone, I use she and her uh, pronouns. I uh, was the executive director of Teaching Artists Guild for about seven years. Um, now I sit on the uh, National Advisory Committee and the um, uh, finance committee portion of that, whatever we're calling it. And uh, I currently teach at UC Berkeley um, in public policy, uh, cultural policy specifically, and I consult with um, government and non-government organizations um, around cultural policy. Oh, and I was a theater teaching artist for a long time. I still think I am. Yeah, I think a lot of folks are in this room. Um, <clears throat> so thanks, thank, thank you. Welcome everyone. Um, something that's go just going through my brain right now is that uh, all of these panels have some badass women some badass women in our field um, and only like one male presenting person as representing this kind of these conversations so I'm just noting um, all right so I I had shared that I was also at one point the, the president uh, and treasurer of ATA and was in the sort of very beginning conversations um, about what could it look like if we were to merge and so I feel very like often feel very proud of, of starting that conversation or being a part of starting that conversation um, to see the immense amount of work that went into actually ma making that happen. And then ultimately the kind of amazing advocacy work that y'all are doing. Um, so I just lovingly watch from afar, support as I can. Um, so walk us through what, what, what was the merger process like? Um, how long did the process take? Um, and, when, yeah, when did it start? When did it actually start? It took forever is the short answer. <laughs> um, it was like fall of 2019, I think, Jean, when we like, we, we had this commiserating phone call in like maybe September or October of 2019. And I we remember were like, this. Yes. Oh, neither of us can get any money. And how can we support each other better? And Jean sort of was like, what if we did it together? <laughs> I remember this conversation so clearly and I don't know what, you know, led it up to it um, on your end and the conversations behind that. But I clearly remember even where I was, um, I worked at home and uh, that was pre-pandemic. So there you go. Um, but I remember I was pacing back and forth in my little garden area and I was so excited to be talking to you about it. It felt like um, we were just on the cusp of something with a lot of potential. Um, and I was so glad you called. Yeah, I remember exactly where I was too. It's funny. I had just moved back to Seattle and I was like sitting in my mother's dining room. <laughs> yeah, I was sitting there in the dining room and I just remember and you were like, well, what if? And I was like, oh, yeah, what if? Um and then we just started talking to to more folks, and you know, I brought it to the ATA board, um, and Lauren was on the board at that time, um, and Jean brought it to the NAC, and we just continued on the conversations, um, and we started a lot of really great work at the beginning of 2020, and then 
you know, this massive global pandemic happened and that kind of put a wrench into everything. Um, so that's part of the reason it took longer. And then I think the other reason it took a long time is that we had a lot to figure out. I mean, I think both organizations had a really rich history of work and also had problematic histories in terms of creating um and rep replicating shitty systems. Sorry, am I allowed to swear? Crappy systems. <laughs> um, in terms of the the nonprofit industrial complex, and just thinking about ways that we could do it different and ways that we could do it better, and um, and that takes a lot of time, and it takes a lot of thought, and it takes a lot of iterations and throwing a lot of spaghetti against the wall to come up with something that wasn't just going to fail again. Yeah, absolutely. And then throw into it. Um... Uh, well, you mentioned the pandemic. Um, I had also just gotten accepted to uh, grad school and was in the midst of trying to figure out, was I going to stay on at TAG uh, part-time and, and um, try and do that, or whether I was going to go through you know, a full leadership transition during this potential transition during the pandemic. So um it was a little um, unclear how it was all going to go. We had to we had to work through all of those bits and pieces. When you say that, uh, Gina, just like kind of the all of the challenges that were stacked against us during that time, um, and particularly with your kind of transition of leadership, it it is kind of actually a miracle that it happened at the end. Like those are those are a lot of barriers that. Um, that have uh, tanked really well, well-meaning organizations, especially during the pandemic, and and I actually, um, I think that there was something about that merger happening during the pandemic that was a little bit of a crucible that it clarified the need for a national uh, service organization because so many teaching artists were so lost in that moment of how to continue our practice, how to financially sustain themselves, how to um, support our community that was in the midst of trauma uh, with the skills that we have when the tools that we were used to using were taken away from us. And that moment in time, I think, uh, seemed to propel forward the need of like, we can't let this drop because actually the the services that these two organizations and now one organization provide to teaching artists and the potential services that we could provide to teaching artists together are so incredibly necessary. Yeah, I was I was going to ask a question about like, what was the impacts on, on of the pandemic on this merger? And you've shared that without me even having to ask, but can we just go underneath? Like what was, okay, here are questions that I have that are popping up for me. Uh, one, was there ever a moment where you're like, let's just stop. We can't do it. Uh, what made you keep going if that happened? Um, what were some of the, the things that you were saying? What if, what if, what were the what ifs? I remember um, there was, there was a moment in March of 2020 um, and it was a period of time where schools in there was like a week where schools in Seattle had shut down, um, but not everywhere. And we were all in this place where we were social distancing at schools. And um, uh, we held the this group of people. I can't remember if it was under ATA or TAG at the time, but <clears throat> this group of people held a basically like a national call in support session for teaching artists to call in and say, like, how do we do this? How do we teach? Um, how do we teach with our art form when we can't touch each other? When um, some of us are not able to be in the same space, some people are starting to teach remotely. Other people were in schools, but trying to figure out like, how do you dance when you can't when you have to stay three feet away from your dance partner? And <clears throat> it was this moment in time that was so uh, specific and kind of qu very quickly washed over by all of us being home all the time. But um, I remember texting Halea and um, the and just saying like all of the uncertainty that we're going through right now because ATA was very much in a place of like should we continue is it are are we a necessary um, voice and and role in this ecosystem or has has this particular organization run its course um, kind of alluding back to some of the more problematic aspects of nonprofit management um, that were failing us. 
Um, and that meant that we were failing our community in a way. And that moment I texted Halea and I was like, I uh, know it's all worth it. Like just in this one moment when anxiety was so high, when people, when the future was so incredibly uncertain to be able to hold a space where we could support teaching artists who were just in, uh, in just like such a place of immediate and shared need and to be able to have the the rudimentary platform and ability to address that need just in that moment. I was like, yep, it's worth it. This is like the community that people needed. This is the, um, this is the service that we need to provide is not giving things to teaching artists, but just connecting teaching artists, helping teaching artists share with each other what their best practices are and how to get through the challenges in our field. So that, and then, and then of course, like everything shut down and everything changed after that. But I, I just do remember that one moment of, of recognizing for me anyway, personally, of just like, this is such a needed resource in the community and in a moment when all of the arts organizations were freaking out for all of their million other reasons, their eyes weren't always on teaching artists. Um, and we had the opportunity to provide that. And Lauren, I think at the same time that ATA was going through that, TAG was going through that as well. We were going like, should we continue? And Jean came to the NAC and said, I'm going to grad school. Who in the group would like to, you know, hold space? And everybody stepped back and I found I was the only one that was still standing there. Like, wait, what? <laughs> How am I the only one here? And just timing wise, I had just left a position as a, um, as a, you know, more a decade and a half as an executive director of an arts organization and was going into consulting. So it just timing wise, I had the time available when other people didn't have the time. And so I had said to Jean, okay, let me just hold it just for a moment in time while you go to grad school and we and we work for this merger. And that was the idea is just to hold space to be able to keep it going. And then in addition to what Lauren was saying, the pandemic, when George Floyd was murdered and Breonna Taylor were murdered, that was actually a turning point for us because a lot of us in arts ed got together on these conference calls with, what, Halea, like 25 folks from different organizations. We all got together on these calls saying, "What?" and Courtney, you were part of those too in the very beginning. And we said, what are we going to do? There was a whole thing around keep making art and supporting making art and supporting artists. I, th I thought that that was sort of the part of it. And, and it made a whole lot of sense that people from ATA and TAG were in those rooms, plus um, folks from the uh, teaching artists in, of the Mid-Atlantic and lots of people who, you know, genuinely care and advocate for teaching artists. And those were, and, you know, as you're talking, Mika, like I'm remembering, I'm going back to that and being like, I, I, I like everybody was so effing stressed out about everything. And those conversations were, really validating but also super stre stressful <laughs> to, onto themselves and yet it was like but of course we need to be doing something right yeah but there's 25 i think it was like 25 different groups if i remember correctly and then from that from that big group there was a group that said okay we're gonna meet regularly and it was a smaller group and we call it the race car group and that was tag and ata and we were really Helen and i were just like okay we're gonna work together we're gonna make this happen no matter what even even though life is crazy <laughs> and but then it included the Lincoln Center and the National Guild for Community Schools and um, New Victory you know it it am I missing somebody Tama and the round table Tama teaching artists in the middle and the round table yeah and Tama right and so all of us got together and said okay we got to address how teaching artists are being left out during the pandemic because at the time teaching artists at all the arts organizations were just one quickly turning teaching artists into doing video stuff and taking advantage of them, not paying them for like canceling their contracts and then asking them to make these videos and edit them without paying them any extra and then using those videos again and again. So it's like all the things before the pandemic that, you know, teaching artists not getting pay, not getting the respect, it was amplified during the pandemic. And we also knew that with, you know, the racial uprising, that there was a lot of 
or teaching artists that were teaching directly to what was happening in our communities. And the teachers were not equipped to do that. So there were so many different things that teaching artists, we really felt needed support. And at the same time, Helena and I go like, um, how do we pay the bills? <laughs> you know, well, how do we make this merger happen? Do, what about a strategic plan? How do we keep the doors open? It was a bit of a crazy time. I mean, and we really got through that time because Miko stepped in because I didn't have the bandwidth to hold it at that point. I mean, and we went through so many different iterations, but at one point, you know, I had just taken a full-time job in Seattle. And at one point when we were talking about the merger, it was like, yeah, and then Gene will take over both orgs and I'll just move on to the board and whoop, that'll be just so easy and we'll do it in three months. Ha 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 ha, four years later. Um, but you know, I we were we were all anybody who was working in administration at that point was just working 80 hour weeks and it was a nuts time. We we're just running on like pure adrenaline, I feel like at that point. And Miko really held uh, so much of that during that time. I'm eternally grateful. We would never would have gotten through that time if she hadn't stepped up to the plate because I just there weren't enough hours in the day. What I keep coming back to in all of these conversations is the different iterations of shared power and um, it feels very, very indigenous, actually. When we started working on the strategic plan, we really wanted to use a concentric leadership model. And so we we focused on that. And I think part of it was, I, I think I will say, at least for me, and I would love you all feedback, that there was not ego attached. Like, I didn't care about a title. Like, it was just to be able to do the work. I honestly, to me, being an ED is bogus. It's uh, the nonprofit industrial complex. It's the system is messed up. And so it was how do we create a kind of collective vibe to push forward this work. So I, I th and and that's what we have tried to do. And it's, it's a struggle. Like, even now, it's a struggle to be able to have enough to pay those folks and to, you know, get that sense of respect and the honestly, the living wage that we're fighting for for teaching artists we don't have that for the staff still. So true. What's interesting about this also, I've noticed that um, there's been a shift over the last maybe 10 years or so where um, I think um, funders are getting a little bit more comfortable with this idea, but it's taken a lot of time. Miko, I don't know if you remember this, but when you all brought me back, when you brought me on, um, as ED back in 2013, um, we talked about a shared model. Um, Lynn and I were going to share leadership. I mean, share leadership. It was a two-person operation at that point, right? Or maybe three. We brought on, yeah, anyway. And Gina, at the time we brought you in, we were doing a shared leadership model. It was five of us that were doing a shared leadership model, yeah. And we thought after five of us trying to hold it and everybody had full-time jobs, we thought, oh, one person is going to be good. And that's what we pulled Gene in. So it, I, think, I think I just feel like we're still searching for what's the right model, honestly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, but the, the conversation at the time, um, you know, going from it's, I think it was one thing to say, okay, there were five of us kind of carrying this um, as a, as a group. Um, but when you hired an ED and then say, um, all right, actually, no, it's a co-leadership model. There's two EDs or whatever you want to call it. We were concerned. Um, the group was concerned that um, funders weren't going to like that 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 was not a system they were comfortable with. And so we should just, however we wanted to do it internally is fine, but we needed to put this name on it, this role, this person to, to um, you know, be the spearhead. Uh, and that's what, um, that's what funders were comfortable with. And I think that's shifted a lot over the last 10 years. That's absolutely true, Jean. And like a lot of organizations in the Pacific Northwest have have tried to move into this model. And I get phone calls about it all the time. It's like, how how did you do it? Um, and how does you know what were the pitfalls? And and people, uh, people who have funded Tag also like use us as an example for other organizations to say, look what they did. Like they got rid of their board. Basically, they got rid of their nonprofit structure um and you know how can we do that on a larger scale i do think that like one of the reasons that we have been 
I don't want to jinx us. We have gotten this far <laughs> in this model um, is that both organizations had a really like long, rich history of collaboration, um, both in terms of the, the working board with ATA and then the National Advisory Committee with the NAC. So it was never sort of a, a one-person leader situation in either organization. And so I do think that that really helped because I do understand for organizations that are set up in like a real true nonprofit hierarchy, like blowing that to shreds can can be really hard. I mean, it was hard for us even, and we already had the, the long, rich history of it. Um, so I just, I want to point that out that that both organizations did did have that basis already. Yeah. And come on, we are all of us working, teaching artists, and we do collaboration really well. I think that that's such a good point, Jean, is that um, there's something about teaching artistry uh, that makes us good at everything. Um, are we superheroes? Do we have superpowers? Um, now I wish you guys were not un un unmuted because you all just kind of exploded with delight there. But um, I, you know, when I think about this, like I am a full-time administrator now. Um, I'm an executive director at a, at a mid-sized nonprofit. And I, um, on an almost daily basis, like intentionally reflect on you know, like what teaching artist skills am I going to bring in here to collaborate, to build communication, to um, imagine for the future, to communicate about when things are not going well, um, that, 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 that praxis of making the creative process intentional in community development is, is um, something that we all do with second, as a second nature. Um, and so, there the and the comfort with uncertainty too. I think that that's something that teaching artists um, have in abundance. Is the is you walk into classrooms that you don't you don't know anything about what you're walking into. You don't know what what the students are going to be like or what the teachers going to be like. If there's going to be air conditioning or um, you know constant fire alarm drills going off, um, and we're very comfortable being responsive and in the moment and shifting um, shifting quickly. And knowing what to hold on to and what to let go of. And um, I think that that's really served this particular organization very well. And to all of those um, organizations out there who want to have a shared leadership model, I would just say hire teaching artists. Lauren, I think that is so right. I, I work for a civil rights organization now. And I every day I find pulling from teaching artistry skills is so important to my work in storytelling, in um, presenting, in communicating with folks, and you know, even just doing like warm-up exercise. Everybody is shocked that I could just immediately pull 5,000 warm-up exercises, right, to start a conference off. And any teaching, any good teaching artist can do that easily. These are just life skills, life skills, being a teaching artist. I was gonna say, yeah, that I feel like those same skills should be more utilized in government, and maybe even the philanthropy. I mean, like, what's going on over there? I don't know. Um, sorry. Um, okay, so I I feel like I got a really good sense. We have a good sense of the leadership model. We have a good sense of the kinds of conversations, but I still, what were the what ifs? Like, what were you hoping to accomplish and, and are you accomplishing them now? I think one of the, um, well, I can talk to what the what if was, and I don't know as much about how it's being accomplished or if it is, but, um, you know, ATA had had a primary funder for decades that was the state of New York um, and the Arts Council there. And when that, when that funding um, disappeared, I think there was a big question of like, what do we do that is of value and who values it and what money can they give us? Um, and so one of the, the reasons I think that, that the merger was very appealing for the board anyway was that um, because the state of New York had been our primary funder, that had really been our, our uh, fo the focus of our service area as well. And there was always this desire to go national and this recognition that social media um, made it possible for... Uh, national conversations to be held without conferences. And um, 
And so like this idea of like, oh, what if we were national? Would that be appealing to funders? Is that something that someone would want to get behind? And there was definitely um, from the board's perspective, this kind of idea of like, okay, let's let's see, like maybe there maybe we can get some get some buy in from some from some larger national funders. And I know that that is has not um, exactly transpired with the abundance that we would have hoped. Um, But I do think that that loss of funding and the freedom that came with it because it did open up our potential service area so much was was definitely um, one of the um, motivating factors. I think the structure, um, like Nico said, um, we started with this concentric leadership model and we moved around a lot about what that could look like. Um, but I think one of the things that I have really taken away from this is that TAG is in this really unique place to let the world know that teaching artistry has transferable skills and demonstrate that teaching artists have transferable skills and give folks the opportunity to learn some of these more administrative um pathways to the work that don't necessarily have to end in being a director of education or being an executive director, um, but can can land in you creating your own organization, right? These are all just like general admin business skills that we're doing on a much smaller scale as teaching artists, right? Um, but giving folks the opportunity to, to broaden their national network in that way. Um, and that's, you know, nobody would have hired me as an executive director when I was like, 31 or however old I was when you hired me, Lauren and Courtney, you know, um, I didn't have any leadership experience at all. I only had teaching artist experience. Um, And that is why I've been able to be successful in other leadership positions as directors of education is because TAG and or ATA at the time gave me that opportunity and and it gave me the grounds, like the learning grounds and the mentors with with which to do that. And I really see that TAG is doing that now. You know, um, Carrie, our new co-executive director, was a teaching artist. She was part of um, the National Advisory Committee. Um, and she has a lot of fantastic potential that I don't think most organizations would would jump on. And with our rotating leadership model now, in terms of only sort of staying in the position for, for three years, you give folks that opportunity to learn those skills, but they don't have to make the, the jump commitment to saying like, yes, this is my new career path. I'm going to do this for the next 20 years. Um, because I think it's great for people to get that leadership experience and then come back into the field, um, like Jean has done. Um, and I mean, I'm still in administration, but you know, I toy with going back to freelance work all the time. I'm going to push back for a second, defend myself, and say you did have leadership experience. It wasn't institutional leadership experience with, um, you know, budgets and and boards and all of that. But you you know, the one of the reasons that you were the obvious. Uh, person to come in and be ED was that you did you had the, you were already a leader within the teaching artist community in New York, and had done a lot of work um, with the Roundtable in that. And um, I, I mean, I remember after, after we interviewed you, uh, uh, Thomas Cabanis, who's still on the neck, um, I believe, uh, was like, "Why are we faffing about with other? Just hire Halea. Like she's obviously the person to do this job." <laughs> because you you have the the disposition as well as the kind of innate leadership skills so I, I yes I totally agree that of, of all of it you're saying about the benefit of like learning those actual like uh, specific skills to organizational leadership around um you know governance and and and, and administration but um but there is there's something in the 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 leadership ability of the people who are leaders, no matter what room that they walk into. And, um, and because they have a vision and, um, and, uh, stubbornness, I think that maybe is also a like really inherent quality and like small nonprofits, like just being really stubborn. Perseverance. Tenacity. Yes. There you go. That's a much nicer way to say it. Perseverance. And just to, just to add to that, I think um, Halea, one of the, Halea is talking about the shared leadership model and the kind of three years on and bring a new person on. And I think that was an un, um, 
a, a happy byproduct of creating this model of this, okay, we have somebody that has a little bit more historical knowledge and then we bring on a new co-ED and so that there's this rotating leadership so that there's always somebody that's fresh from the field. I think and when we were talking about creating that model, we didn't necessarily think, oh, we're training leaders. But that's what it's ended up, or at least I didn't think that, but it we, it's ended up being that, that there's new folks coming in and we're training them. And like Lauren said, you know, you're noticing that spark of that leader in that person. But as Halea said, not necessarily what traditional nonprofit would see as that leader. So again, it's how do you um, sharpen and hone some of those skills? And I actually, I think we need to get better at that, you know, actually coming up with a specific methodology and way of training those new folks is, is something to work on a little bit more. But uh, that has been a lovely byproduct of helping to like build build up the next gen of leaders by having this co-rotating leadership model. I just want to also add that what an impact that that can have um, for the the racial equity within our field, um, that when, you know, we saw what happened when you rely on, on kind of a traditional pipeline of administrators um, in arts and arts education, is it that you end up with just like a lot of white people who worked their way up from intern to coordinator to program manager to director and that because that was the only pipeline that was really available and looking at ways of building in a pipeline for uh, teaching artists particularly teaching artists of color to be able to build in those skills and get that work experience and and it's a different pipeline it's it's imagining a different way of preparing people for leadership um where, where you can kind of start with, at a smaller organization and and then move towards a larger organization. And that's something that I'm seeing not just in our field, but kind of across the board is the value um, recognized uh, of like what it takes to run a small nonprofit or a small business as an artist and that you're developing skills that are immensely valuable to somebody in a larger organization. Um, and, and that those are folks who are worth not just worth recruiting, but like highly desirable. Um, and, and so I, I hope that ATA in that, or a, a tag in that way is like um, seeding the future leadership at larger organizations as well as within our own. And we wrote in that one of those leaders in this kind of triad of folks, that one of those is a BIPOC leader. So there was an intentionality around that, um, about making sure that we're pro- making teaching artists as accessible and as representative of the field as possible. I think that's so, so important. And I'm so um, excited um, and happy to see TAG um, doing this work uh, and moving this forward. And I think the only thing uh, to add to it now is that uh, we need to pay our people better. Right. We need to pay our leaders better. We need to pay our teaching artists better, our administrators all around. So um, maybe we can get some funders really, really excited about this model uh, that we're highlighting here um, and really see the value. Who's listening? Hello, Mackenzie Scott. (laughs) We are TAG. Please support us. I want to double down on what Gina's saying and also like acknowledge the strides that that we have made through the merger in that area because um you know we we um have given raises to the co-executive directors we were able to pay both of them at 20 hours which is not something that we could handle even when Miko and I were doing it together so we've we've upped the hours we've upped the the health benefit stipend and we started a 401k this year so um we are we are moving forward. Um, I wish they were bigger steps, but they are intentional steps um, too within within our network. Um, and I think the other thing that I just want to point out about the um, the move to national is that um, ATA was very focused in New York, and TAG was very focused in California, and we have rightly been called out on our coastal elitism in being a national organization. And that has been a real major focus um, of, you know, my my like last few um, months or year with TAG and now with Katie and Carrie as the new co-executive directors. And I think a real great potential with the rotating leadership three-year model is that we're making sure that the actual 
50 states of the United States are represented in that leadership and that we don't get too focused on certain states where people live um, because those happen to be our neighborhoods. Um, And Katie and Carrie in particular have really, really worked to grow the national representation of the NAC outside of California and New York. Can you talk about the NAC? So it's the National Advisory Committee. I can talk about that a little bit um, from the the early day perspective, um, we had, uh, so this is a tag in California circa 2012, 2013. Um, I was brought on, uh, we had this uh, tremendous group that had been um, uh, leading tag. Um, they kind of handed the ball to me. And uh, one of the things we knew we wanted to do was to expand the service um, outside of our area, outside of California. Um, We really saw the need for that. Um, We were a fiscally sponsored organization for a really long time. And uh, as such, we didn't have um, a formal board, Uh, but we wanted some folks who could have that um, advisory capacity for us um, who were leaders in the field in different locations um, and who could help us, um, you know, both guide us, support us, cheer us on um, and um, bring new uh, fresh knowledge of other areas that we didn't have. And so we came up with this concept of um, a national advisory committee um, that, you know, in some ways acts a little bit like a, a board, but without the, uh, the legal governance portion of it, and um, proceeded to, to go on and invite folks from there. And then it's, you know, uh, gone on and grown and, and shifted a little bit in its structure. But that was the, uh, the basis. I think the one thing that came out of the strategic planning, Lauren Amico jumped out here, was that um, we realized, too, that the The National Advisory Committee um, was really a lot of administrators um, who had the time and capacity to come and meet in meetings like that. And we really wanted to make space for working teaching artists to be part of that. And we knew that that needed to come with money. And so that's something I'm quite proud of that came out of strategic planning was creating a stipend structure. And so that doesn't push the administrators out by any means. Um, Many folks... Gene and Miko included, me included, we're all members of the NAC and we don't take the stipends. We volunteer our time because we're in positions that we can do that. And I recognize that many other folks are not in positions where they can do that. So there's um, there's stipends now. I, we hope to grow them into larger stipends and that is part of Katie and Carrie's strategic plan. Uh, but right now there are modest stipends for people to um, come to meetings and to, to be part of the work, right? Because we know from, from both organizations' histories that the work doesn't happen with one, co- one ED or two co-EDs or three co-EDs. It, it, it takes not a village, it takes a nation of teaching artists to move it forward. Um, and so creating those, those stipends for working teaching artists was something very important in expanding the NAC. Um, and I think we really are trying to lean into the many hands make light work so that it becomes less of a massive commitment um, to to be, you know, when you when you were an ATA board member, it's like you had a fundraising ask, you had to lead a committee, you had to work on several events. Like it was a huge commitment. <laughs> um, and not unsurprisingly, we didn't get very many people who were super interested in being on the board in that way. And so now there's ways to participate, which means like just come to four meetings a year on Zoom or um, host like one event in your, your area or review the nominations for the awards um, and get a stipend for it or like solicit one person to write for um, the newsletter from your area. So we're making sure to represent everybody. Um, so it's it's a bit more manageable, I think, now. I remember um, uh, Lindsay Buller-Molly-Gull, who um, many of us know, was, has been on the NAC for ages and ages. And um, she would talk about, she would talk to me about why the NAC is like, such a great vehicle for her to be involved um, as, as opposed to like sitting on a board for an organization. And it is that like, it doesn't have the commitment and responsibility and the weight of being on a board for those governance reasons. Um, it has a social component that it's a chance to check in with your 
colleagues from around the region or around the country that you don't get to see on a regular basis. Um, and that it allows for folks to float in and float off. So, you know, in the time that Lindsay has been on the NAC, I know she's uh, moved across the country and then back again and had baby after baby. She just keeps um, having them and, uh, and job transitions. And that like that, that the NAC structure just, uh, allows for that flexibility of participation and it's really inclusive in that way. It doesn't kind of uh, frown on people who can't show up for a little while because life gets busy for them and um, and that that's a that's a way of of having leadership that I think is um, not accidental. like I think that that says something to the value of um, of the values that underlie the work that we do that like we have to be able to show up as our full selves. And sometimes that means we can't show up, (laughs) but that like, that doesn't make us not reliable or not, not um, uh, deserving to show up when we do have more space. That was really beautifully put. Thank you, Lauren. Something uh, that you said, Halea made me see, see tag slightly differently because I am not, I haven't been, I've never actually been a part of, like directly a part of TAG. Um, uh, but the that national focus and being able to learn more about what's happening in the, the various states or regions. Um, one of the big things, I listened to the podcast of the strategic plan. And one of the big things that I feel like came out of that was that conference, our shared future. Um, can you talk about how that how that came about? What was the hope, and what what's happened between now and then? Then and now, sorry. And then the last thing I'd like to know is about the teaching artist awards and just like how how is that manifesting? Because I I recall what that was, but I, I you ta- you've talked about it a few times about people being on that committee. Miko, you should start talking about the conference because it was it was your brainchild, really. I was speaking at when I was uh, when I was working with Halle as the co-ED, I was speaking before a Maryland, the state of Maryland arts education conference. And I was on a panel with the then um, head of the, 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 the leader of the National Endowment for the Arts. And I was talking about the need to support teaching artists. And so she said, NEA would like to help support with that. And so that started this two year two year long conversation with them. Um, and so it was actually the, the NEA the first time because they were recognizing that they did not fund directly teaching artists. And really our goal at TAG was to get them to give a line item, still is the goal, to get them to do a line item directly for teaching artists so that we could use the asset map to fund teaching artists. I'm still trying to manifest that into a reality. <laughs> So we really wanted to be able to work with the NEA in that way. They really wanted to, they felt like at the time they were funding arts organizations, right? That directly they were funding um, state arts agencies. uh, But again, individual artists just missing out of the, you know, teaching artists missing out of that whole scenario of funding. So they, um, we worked with them for two years with amazing support from the Hewlett Foundation. Thank you, Jess Maley, for being there for us. Um, <laughs> amazing to have somebody that was really in the founding of TAG, as we talked about in the last episode, stepped into a funding position using their positional power to help really support and understand what our work was. And so we held, we had a lot of negotiations with the NEA to be real. It was um, complicated to come up with language that we felt both spoke to what we wanted to do and what they wanted to get across. It was very complicated and a long process, but we eventually held the first ever uh, federally funded conference. It was, of course, all online. We did it over two days. And Halea, I can't even remember it. Three days. See, I can't even remember it. It feels like a blur. It was so much work heading into that conference. It was postponed once because of many different reasons. Um, But we got a great turnout and a lot of people uh, showed up and a lot. And we tried to push to have listening sessions in individual states. And I will say what predated the conference, what actually came before the conference, what came out of that race car group I was saying before was 
uh, tag working in collaboration with Tama, Teaching Artists of the Mid-Atlantic, and it was really me and Jennifer Ridgway listening to teaching artists across the country. Well, we held tag, put this whole facilitation guide for listening sessions across the country. Different people held them with teaching artists. And then we created this thing that we actually called the breakup letter, which was a breakup letter from teaching artists to arts organizations. And that breakup letter, along with a rubric for repair, a checklist for how you could repair your relationship with teaching artists. And it was actually that ended up getting a lot of steam. I spoke at a bunch of different conferences about it. We have a little video on it, which we could put a link to in the podcast. And it was actually that led up into providing the a lot of the kind of fuel for how we developed the conference. Halea, chip in because I forget what happened. <laughs> yeah, it was a lot of it was a lot of work. Poor Katie, it was like her first like month, and we were like, "Hey, we're we're doing something that's never been done." Okay, jump on. <laughs> but luckily, she had been part of the race car group, so she was she's been tuned in to the to the teaching artist world for a while and is a superstar and just jumped in feet first. Um, yeah, it was a lot of work, but it was well worth it. I mean, I think the same feeling that Lauren was alluding to when we got everybody together for a convening right at the beginning of COVID. Um, I mean, nearly a thousand people registered for this conference nationwide. There is obviously a need for an organization like TAG and being able to provide something free on Zoom was incredible. And we were able to really bring a whole lot of really fantastic conversations. And it also really brought to the to the forefront how much disagreement there is in the field. We have a lot of different viewpoints, particularly around where you live in the country, right? Um, and out of that conference, we were able to get a lot more NAC members from areas that have never been represented. I've been learning so much about the rural TA experience in the past couple of years um, from folks who have joined the NAC that I just, you know, was absolutely rightly called out for and being very like urban centric. I mean, I've taught only in like LA, New York and Seattle, which are like real big hubs for teaching artistry. And that is really different than living in Montana or South Dakota, where you work in four different states and drive for days, you know, to get to your to your gigs. Um, so, uh, so much I think came out of that. But I think the thing that came out of it for me was I think coming out of that time, you know, it was like 2022, we were all starting to like hit the fatigue of COVID, I think. And a lot of people were starting to like transition out of jobs and just hit walls. And I think I was at that point, I was like, I don't know if any of this was worth it. And we just threw all the spaghetti on the wall and like, maybe it doesn't matter anyway. And then we had the conference and it was like, oh, that's right. There is a huge need. Um, and you're not alone in this work, right? That's the thing that I always feel anytime I come to a gathering of teaching artists, whether it's something just like this with five of us on a Sunday morning, or if it's something with a thousand people from across the country, is that the work is important, the work is necessary, and the work must go on. But also, most importantly, I'm not alone in the work. And that's what makes it worth moving forward. I think other things that have come out of it since then are um, some additional partnerships. You know, um, Lakita Edwards is on the South by Southwest Education uh, Board of Directors, and she proposed a teaching artist specific session for us at South by this year. Um, so I sat on a panel with um, several other folks representative from um, the Texas arts education world, and we had an enormous response to a teaching artist focused session. I wasn't really sure if many teaching artists came to that conference, but we had like 70 people show up at our session, which is really incredible. Um, so that's been fantastic to sort of bring teaching artistry into the national limelight um, and lots of other partners um, who worked on that conference too, like the Arts Education Partnership um, and the NEA are, you know, interested in continuing on this conversation. We've been chatting with Lauren about maybe doing something at the AEP conference um, happening in September. And so I, I do feel like that was a, a push that teaching artistry is now being acknowledged in the national arts education landscape in a way that I didn't feel it was three years ago. Lauren, did you want to add anything? Not specifically to the, to the conference, I think I, I, I but I, I do agree that the, um, 
the visibility in that, the inclusion of rural um, teaching artists. And I, I now, um, I'm the uh, executive director of Arts for Learning Northwest, which is serves Oregon and Southwest Washington. And we have a lot of rural teaching artists in rural communities and are trying to figure out as an organization how to serve them better and not just put up structures that are serving rural areas and, or sorry, urban areas. And that that, yeah, that that is this a thing that um, I feel like there's just been an enormous amount of shifting in the field over the last five years of um, uh, rural artists being able to connect with one another and have community and a shared identity as teaching artists, where in the past, like, they were kind of these floating silos of, like, maybe not even using the words teaching artists, and I feel like that's changing a lot um, recently. I also, I just, I've been reflecting during this conversation on um, an activity that we did during the strategic planning retreat in 2021. <laughs> just, just shrugged like, I don't know, who knows what year that was. Uh, yeah, it was 2021, um, in January of 2021. Um, and we were encouraged to um, imagine what our community looks like um, 200 years in the future. And that was such a provocative moment um, when we were all still uh, kind of in lockdown. It was like before vaccines were widely rolled out. I remember during during the strategic planning session, one of the days there was a violent insurrection in our capital. Um, th there was there's a lot of uncertainty and instability in our world. And to, to be able to think, what does our community look like in 200 years? Um, we got to imagine this kind of post-capitalist world where our um, our in industrial structures, our factories, and our um, building an infrastructure that right now is poisoning the earth of being reframed to be nourishing the earth and living in in reciprocity and what and the role of art in that that art and community-based practices. Um, kind of touch all areas of public life that we we um, we make art together at, at work and in, in recreation time that art is part of our public life that you walk through and you see beauty where you are um, that you collaborate with other people in in your daily life and it really um, I hold on to that as a really meaningful vision of of the world that we're building um, and particularly in this like, late capitalist uh world that is falling apart and and um not really serving anybody anymore um and actively like harming most people and the planet and and what comes after that what comes after um we finally reject these these harmful realities that we've created for ourselves um and and teaching artistry as being just an incredibly important part of that and um Courtney, you said something earlier about um, a certain like indigeneity in in the collaborative work that we do, and I think that that's something that I'm really um, spending a lot of time thinking about and reflecting on as a as a white European person um, uh, of what it looks like to return to community based practices to earth centered practices, um, and that and that teaching artists um have a role to play in that because that's that's what the role of the artist has been um in in most indigenous cultures is that art is not separate from real life it's not a thing that lives in in cultural institutions it's a part of our daily practice and so we um I don't know, just to build that vision of like we are part and in, in, in of everyday life that we that we we hit healthcare education civic planning um, government, all of it. Uh, I, I just, I love that for our future 200 year sets. Anyway, that was a couple of years ago. So now it's 198 years away. <laughs> Let's go. Let's go. Um, so like here, here are the themes that are coming up for me, like collective, uh, creative, creativity, listening, deep listening, action, catapulting slash catalyst, yeah, I'm just saying words, but these are the things that are coming up. Um, I want to talk about celebrating as our final thoughts around the tag awards. Let's let's talk about how are we celebrating the beautiful work that's happening in our field by by spotlighting annually 
specific folks? Um, what is that process to to um, find those folks to get those folks no- nominated? And like, who's who's involved in selecting the selection process? And then what happens after they're selected and announced? You were really involved in the the new iteration of the awards, Courtney. I think we sort of we reimagined it in my first year at ETA, um, and it was still very New York centered, and it happened in person then. Um, and it, we had a lovely event, and then um, when COVID happened, and when we started on the merger, we sort of started to rethink that. Um, so the. Um, it's sort of looked different every year, <laughs> actually, since I've been involved in the organization. And I think we keep trying to find the best way to reach as many folks as possible. Um, so in 2020, we partnered with Lincoln Center to do a virtual award center as part of their Lincoln Center Activate, which was really great because Lincoln Center has been a partner of the awards for a number of years. Um, and then last year, we did it at the conference, which was great since we already had everybody gathered from around the country. And it was a really lovely way to end the conference. Um, I think, should we continue a national conference? We're sort of thinking about it in an every other year point at this point. The awards should definitely be a part of that. Um, we came to the National Advisory Committee to say, what should the awards be this year, actually? Because um, we weren't quite sure. And I think the thing that came out of that conversation, or a few conversations actually with the NAC about how the awards could be something more special than just getting on Zoom, um, was was the resounding success of the regional events connected to the national conference last year because NAC is only as strong as our, our regional networks and there is a lot of interest in learning best practices for creating regional networks around the country and that's a real focus of the advocacy and outreach committee that Lauren and I are both still a part of, um, and the awards also live in that committee. So we thought, you know, how can we use this opportunity to raise the visibility, but also allow regional networks to celebrate their own communities as well. Um, And so we worked into the budget um, opportunities to pay folks in their regional networks to host watch parties around the events. because we just didn't think people were going to tune into Zoom. <laughs> but if if there was an opportunity to gather with folks in your own network um, and have a little food and drink and celebrate the own fantasticness and excellence um, within your own community, um, and also then learn a little bit about what's happening around the country. And I'm really excited about this year's award winners. Um, we have a longtime teaching artist from South Dakota this year. So that's a state that's never been represented. Um, and we have two um, fantastic winners um, from the state of Pennsylvania, also in Philadelphia, um, which has a really rich teaching artist um, tradition as well. And I'm glad that we're going to be able to shine a spotlight on that and reach out about getting involved in a, in a regional network um, on the, the teaching artist uh, um, Guild's website, because that's really what we imagine TAG being, is is the hub and the umbrella to lift up and um, shine a spotlight on all of the fantastic regional work that's happening around the country. Thank you. Um, and yeah, you can find out more about the specific winners on the TAG website at teachingartists.com. Um, any last thoughts as we, as we wrap up to share with the audience? I just, um, I want to express some gratitude for the women in this group, um, as well as the panelists who joined you on the other sessions, Courtney, and that there's an inherent tension that we have in wanting to pay and compensate our leaders and, um, and not always having the ability to do it. And these leaders who step up and lead anyway, um, and that, that recognizing that that's not a sustainable model um into the future because we we burn through people but um also I, I i don't want the fact that it's not perfect to to diminish the incredible service that um particularly these women have provided to our field um and that leadership and um i uh i hope that that the the parades and awards in your honor um, come sooner rather than later because because um, your contributions really are transformative. I'll just say, hit us up and get involved. Email us, find us on socials, make sure you're on the asset map. Um, come and come and be a part of it because we are as strong as our network and our network continues to grow and get stronger. So glad to be here with all of you. Thank you, Lauren, for saying that. Um, you echoed my 
my thoughts. Absolutely. Um, I remember um, back in the early days, uh, one of our um, one of our funders was pushing us to um, to identify whether we were an advocacy organization or a service organization. We needed to fit into a specific slots. So they knew, you know, how to categorize us and uh, all these things. And I struggled with that for years because I thought, well, we're both. We're really both. And this field needs both. And when you were talking about the awards, Halea, um, you know, it is such a service and so necessary for our field uh, to advocate for our own folks, to lift them up, to celebrate each other. Um, it's an incredible service and it's advocacy. Uh, and I think that uh, that's no longer a question. Um, I don't think we have to delineate. Uh, I think they're one and the same. We hold both very beautifully. And I'm excited to see that continue for another 198 years until we don't need it anymore. <laughs> it's very clear how much, how passionate you are, all are about this work, about these folks, about the peop- the communities that the teaching arts uh, serve and work it with and in and engage. Um, and I, I, for one, am quite proud to know you, um, as well as to be able to be a part in any small way of, of the incredible work that y'all are doing and, um, and representing, you know, the larger, um, Mac and regional networks and, and working with your co-EDs, um, and that rotating leadership, co-leadership model is, is, um, yeah, one that a lot of us could be (laughs) learning from, um, in, in a variety of capacities, um, so I look forward to folks listening to this and hearing and thinking and asking and, and definitely, as Halea said, get involved. Um, if you feel like you're not necessarily um, uh, engaging in, in, in what feel what could feel like a community to you, there's one waiting for you um, and ready to embrace you. Thank you for listening to episode 63, act two of Teaching Artistry with Courtney J. Body. Looking back to look forward, collaborate, cultivate, celebrate. Join us next time for act three. This podcast is edited and produced by Ben Weber. Christopher Totten is the director of creative content. Jonna Waldman wrote and performed the theme song. Tim Palin designed the logo. Visit us at www.teachingartistry.org and head to the pod shop at the top of the page for merch. Visit us on Instagram at Teaching Artistry Podcast and now on YouTube. Check out the Teaching Artistry with Courtney J. Body channel and watch We Can't Go Back. Like our page on Facebook. Listen to us on SoundCloud and Spotify. Subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts, and be sure to share this podcast with all the teaching artists in your life. Let's start it up now. Let's start it up now.